0: This is the Sound on Sound
1: podcast. Hello and welcome to the SOS podcast, brought to you by the Sound on Sound editorial team. I'm Chris Mayswright, SOS News Editor. This month we've got some news from the Frankfurt Music Messe, including interviews with Peter Neubecker from Salimony and Chris Jenkins from SSL, as well as a usual question and answer session with Editor-in-Chief Paul White and Technical Editor Hugh Robjohns. Also, SOS contributor Will Haas will be telling us a bit more about mix compression, which he covers in the May issue of Sound on Sound. But first, here's a roundup of the news. A Swedish company called Twobox have announced an innovative new electronic drum kit called the Drumit 5. It's similar in concept to the already popular products from the likes of Roland and Yamaha, but the Drumit 5 can be loaded with standard audio files and even entire patches from virtual drummer software packages such as BFD. 2box say that this gives the user the freedom to create any kit they desire and because multi-sample patches with numerous velocity layers can be used, a more dynamic and realistic sound can be achieved. For an audio demo, head to the 2 website at www2 Focusrite have added a new product to their Liquid range of dynamic convolution processing hardware. The Liquid Mix 16 is almost identical in looks to its bigger brother, the Liquid Mix, but it doesn't have the LCD, so most visual feedback comes through an included plugin. Because of this, and a limit of 16 tracks of processing, compared to the 32 tracks accessible with the standard model, the Liquid Mix 16 costs just £300 in the UK and $500 in the US. Check out Focusrite.com for further information. PreSonus have announced the Studio Live Mixer, a hybrid studio and live sound console that's still in development. Apart from having the usual range of inputs and outputs found on a compact live mixer, it's got a 22-in, 18-out Firewire audio interface built in and comes with a piece of software that lets you record direct onto the hard drive of a computer. Keep your eyes on presonus.com for more. Mic manufacturers Royer have announced live versions of some of their acclaimed ribbon mics. Ribbons are seldom used in live sound environments because of their fragility, but Royer say these new mics, which feature stiffened ribbons, should stand up to life on the road. Visit royallabs.com for more. Finally, SM Pro have unveiled a new range of plug-in hosting products. With the V Rack, the V Box, and the V Pedal, you can load in your own software instruments and play them on the go, as you would with a conventional sound module. Or you can load up your favourite plugins and have your entire studio rig in your laptop bag. They're due to ship later this year, so keep a lookout for a review in Sound on Sound and in our sister publication, Performing Musician. Now, it's over to Editor-in-Chief Paul White, who's got some news about Salimony's new Direct Note Access technology, which brings polyphonic pitch detection capabilities to Melodyne. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. Thanks, Chris.
0: I caught up with Salimony's Peter Neubecker at Music Messer, who told me about the new polyphonic version of Melodyne. The demo was really impressive, so I started out by asking him what it could and couldn't do.
2: Uh, I think uh, the main point is manipulating uh, single instruments that haven't been uh, able to be manipulated before, like guitars or pianos or so. But you also could uh, put in a whole mix or a string quartet. Uh, but um, what it won't do is extract uh, a single voice out of it. So it, what comes out is more like a piano extraction, so that you have the notes that are in there, but you don't necessarily know what voice did, did it play. Yes.
0: So if two instruments play the same note at the same time, the software would treat it as a single sound? Yes. So that's the main limitation of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If it plays the same note but at slightly different times, maybe so they're overlapping, it can then identify the two different start times.
2: It it, uh, depends on the context. Uh, Sometimes it will find it, sometimes it will not. Mm. But
0: what we saw yesterday was some quite complicated acoustic guitar parts Mm -hmm. which you managed to separate the notes and then move them about so you could do your old tricks of rearranging, turning major chords into minor chords, lengthening notes, all the things that we're used to seeing with the traditional Melodyne software. Yes. And yet, from what I understand, this this new magical piece of software is, is not going to be sold at some huge price, but it's an upgrade to the existing Melodyne plugin.
2: Yes, Yes, And uh, We wanted it to become a kind of uh, usual uh, that people use it, not just, well, it's always a de- decision if you make it uh, a very rare product or a very high-priced product, or if you we just say um, it should be used, and that's what we decided. Mm-hmm. Of course, there will be a Melodyne version that's more, that's capable of a lot more things uh, like uh, that the harmony uh, is all over the piece or the tracks know each other and this will only be in the big version of Melodyne because uh, there has to be an infrastructure for that it's not possible in a plug-in but the first product will be the plugin.
0: and as I understand it you can also extract a MIDI file from this after the analysis has been done yes sure so you could effectively do some of the guitar synthesis tricks in non-real time. Yes. Okay, so how did you first get the idea for this? Because people have been talking about it for many years, but it's it's always seemed to be impossible and require huge amounts of processing.
2: Yes, well, um, I don't think it's so much about uh, amount of processing. Um, It's more like getting the idea that it's possible at all. Uh, When I'm thinking about it now, I don't really know what what should be impossible. So... Um, I just worked on it and uh, went step by step and uh, I saw well here's information in the spectrum and anywhere and so and just looking carefully at what is there and you can extract it, that's not so difficult. So the first step
0: is to identify the starts of the individual notes I would imagine and then after that you look for the... The fundamental and all the harmonics that belong to that note. Yeah,
2: not necessarily the start of the notes because if you, for example, have a violin, it will start very softly. So you can look at the uh, of the body of the note first. Or if you detect uh, onsets, you can uh, assign these onsets, for example, to. So it's a, a kind of a complex process, but not with a certain trick, but just with certain diligence due to the material. Okay. Yeah the release date is end of the year I believe so yeah, is, it, is there a lot of work still to do well what I'm running now is my laboratory version and Melodyne as it is it doesn't has doesn't have the infrastructure to handle these uh, polyphonic stuff in terms of that you can uh, select multiple nodes and stuff this is more this has been made ten years ago for monophonic material and we have to create the infrastructure to handle it okay
0: but we'll have a, a similar kind of visual interface to the one you were showing us yes. where you put in a, a single polyphonic file and this expands yes. into a, a yeah. polyphonic display. It, it will be quite the same, yes. Yeah. Mm. Well we shall look forward to trying this out. It's a very exciting
3: product. Okay. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. This is the
4: Sound on Sound Podcast. Well, that's a really intriguing system, isn't it? So Paul, what do you think about it? What do you think it's going to be used for? Well, I think part of me thinks it's going to be used to correct
0: even more sloppy musical performances, which is uh, where products like the original Melodyne and Autotune got used. But at the same time, you can use them for really creative stuff.
4: One of the demonstrations I saw was with some fairly simple jazz stuff from, from, I think it was in the 1950s or 60s, and they managed to separate out a trumpet part really well and then repurpose it, create a completely new tune. Um, There must be some copyright issues with that sort of approach, though.
0: I don't know. I suppose there are some copyright issues associated with the performance as there are with any kind of sampling but if you change the notes then surely you would own the copyright on the new melody because you'd be the composer in effect
4: i guess so yeah so he was saying that the the system's going to be due towards the end of the year he's got a bit more work to do on it now
0: yeah apparently the interface needs quite a lot of work to make it friendly but the technology
4: seems to be solid yeah but the demonstrations were very good Now while we're out in Frankfurt, SOS News Editor Chris Mays wright spoke to Chris Jenkins from SSL who was showing off a very new console they've launched called The Matrix.
1: I'm here with Chris Jenkins from SSL, designer of the new Matrix console. Chris how did Matrix come about? Matrix is the third
3: in a series of products that that all combine analog processing with workstation control. Um, It started with AWS 900, it went up to duality and now We've come out with a system uh, designed primarily to appeal to people who already have collected over the years boutique signal processing in the form of of mic pre's, EQs, uh, compressors, limiters. And Matrix is designed to take all your outboard gear and let you create a very productive analog recording and mixing environment with a workstation. Matrix consists of a 16-channel line mixer combined with a 16-device integrated routing system. So you can plug up to 16 pieces of outboard gear in and then place them in any of the 16 line channels without requiring patch bays. You can create chains of outboard processing um, so you can call up specific arrangements of compressors and limiters and just drop those into any of the 16-channel strips. Each channel strip contains a a digitally controlled attenuator and therefore the motorized fader at the bottom of the channel strip can be flipped to control either a channel in the workstation or one of the analog channels. Um, We've taken our workstation control a lot further, so now we've got four layers of workstation control. So I can be, for example, controlling logic, um, hit one key, the 16 faders then become an interface into, for example, reason as a rewire slate. So you can have up to four different workstation software being controlled from a single control surface, as well as the analogue um, channel strokes. Excellent. Thanks Chris. This is the Sound on Sound Podcast.
0: So, Hugh, hey, what do you make of this? Because as a console, it's basically a mixed-down device with no EQ. It's got a, a routing matrix and door control, but it's it's not what we're used to, is it?
4: No, it's not, but it is quite innovative in a lot of ways. There are consoles out there already which are just essentially just line-input mixed-down consoles, um, but this thing has got a very clever switching matrix in it which allows you to plug all your hardware into the back of the thing and then allocate it as you need to do whatever job you're doing, whether it's tracking or mixing or whatever.
0: And presumably, if you use any of the SSL X-Rack boxes, you can memorise the settings as well.
4: Yeah, all the total recall stuff is all embedded in it, so yeah, that, that's a really flexible way of working.
0: And you can control your door from there, and presumably your monitoring as well.
4: Yep, all of that, headphone mixes for your artists, the whole lot. It, it's really nicely done.
0: So this is really for people who want to mix half in the box and half out of the box, I guess.
4: Best of both worlds, you've got SSL Analog mix bus, but with all the remote control of your favourite uh, door, whatever that might be. Sound Advice
1: The forums on the Sound on Sound website are a good place to get technical help and equipment advice, as well as tips and tricks on recording and mixing. But if you fancy having your questions answered by us on the podcast, just send them in to soundadvice at soundonsound.com. Joe from Brighton in the UK has done just this. He says, hi guys, I'm at the point where I have to make a major decision. I really want to work in the industry and I've been offered a place on a well-respected degree course doing music technology, but I've also got an unpaid job working in a small project studio. What would you do in my position? This is a tricky one to answer, really, because
0: there are advantages of both routes. Obviously, it's cheaper to work in a studio and if you can find a place that will actually teach you something rather than just have you making the tea, then you can learn a lot and a reference from there might help you get a job somewhere else later on. Whereas if you go via college, um, you probably learn a lot more theoretical stuff. But when you come to the end of it, you'll be amongst 10,000 other students looking for the same handful of studio jobs. And quite often it's being in the right place at the right time. So if you have been working in a studio and you've made a good job of it, you probably get your foot in the door rather more easily. What do you think, Hugh?
4: It's a tricky one to balance really isn't it? If, if the finance side of it, because going to university is always going to be expensive, if that's not a problem, if you can afford to do it, then I would. if it's a good course I would probably say go to college um, for two reasons. One is that hopefully you would get all that underpinning technical knowledge that you, that you need uh, and the other thing is that you probably get to see a wider range of equipment than you would if you always worked in the same project studio. Um, and I think a wide range of equipment is a very good way of learning if you always work with the same stuff Then you always end up doing the same things in the same way That's that's probably a bit limiting. It
0: just does rule out that kind of networking approach to getting a job afterwards where you've actually done something Prove that you can do it for a while and then maybe your name gets passed around It's, it's
4: yeah, although most people in, in decent colleges do a lot of work for other people You know you do recordings you do offer you guide up weekends and do stuff Um yeah, there's, there's two ways to it, really. It's, it swings around about.
0: So, the best um, solution, really, is to work free in a project studio weekends and take a college course?
4: I was just going to say that. Do both, yeah. When you come home at weekends or on the holidays, go back to the project studio.
0: And if you don't have one at home, get one?
4: Absolutely. Nothing like doing it yourself and, and you know, taking stuff that you've learned at the course, uh, take it home in the evening and try it out for yourself and experiment in different ways. The good thing is that I think actually the cream will always float to the top. If you know what you're doing and you've got the tenacity and the, and the intellect and, and the ability to do it, then you'll, you'll make it. <laughs> sound advice next up Olly Morgan from Briançon in
1: France asks can you hear the difference between 96 kHz and 192 kHz sample rates I can't and I'm starting to wonder whether I should bother
4: I'd say no actually I'd stick with 96 if your system will handle it or if you've got decent converters, there's nothing wrong with 48 or 44.1.
0: I think I'd go along with that. I mean, a lot of the classic records that we're using now as uh, as test pieces for evaluating studio speakers and the rest of it, were recorded on probably even 16-bit machines running at 44.1 or 48 kilohertz, Unless you're in a world-class studio with really good everything else, then even 96 kilohertz probably doesn't make a lot of sense, considering that you're sacrificing half of the capability of a, a computer-based system to get to that sample rate.
4: Yeah, I think there's a, there's a large element here of just chasing bigger and bigger numbers, to be honest. I mean, there are some very clear technical advantages to working at 96 k. And if your converters are a little bit uh, cheap and cheerful, then often they will sound better at 96 than at 48. But a well-designed converter at 48 or even 44.1 is a wonderful thing. There's there's no doubt about that.
0: Yeah, and being realistic, I think the sample rate probably isn't the weak link in most people's recording chains. I mean, when we look at it, it's setting up the wrong gain structure or poor acoustics or even a poor performance in many cases. The sample rate is probably the least of their worries.
4: I tend to agree. Yeah, I think you're right. The other issue, of course, is that any clocking system will have some kind of jitter it's inherent in any kind of clocking system and the faster the sample rate the bigger proportionally that jitter is going to become so there are arguments uh, and there is some evidence to suggest that the higher and higher sample rates you go to actually the worse the jitter gets and there is a trade-off between quality and sample rate you you kind of go over the peak uh, and things start to deteriorate again I would stick at 96k if your system will work with it and if it will not then 48k will be fine <laughs> Sound advice.
1: Adam Vasquez in California has asked, Should I normalise my dry
4: vocal before I apply reverb to it? I wouldn't normalise anything before you do anything to it. I don't think there's any need to normalise, and actually, it can make things rather more difficult in practice. Uh, if, as long as you record it at a sensible volume and you've got a reasonable amount of headroom, I'd leave it at that.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. If you normalise something, then you've got no further headroom for processing unless the number is scaled down again. And every time that you do something to the gain or level of a signal, then there's some rounding errors that creep in. Admittedly, with 24-bit recording, these are not very serious, but why, why incur problems when you don't need them? If you've recorded at such a low level that you actually need to boost the gain, what I tend to do is put a compressor in because I nearly always need one for vocals anyway and then use the compressor output gain to bring the level up but still leave me with 6 to 10 dBs of headroom. Did yeah, you say that works? Idea.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, th- there are things you need to do to a vocal when you send it to a reverb, I think. Stripping out some of the bass often helps. Certainly some of the bass from the reverb um, and, uh, and sometimes it's a good idea to put a DSR or something in to try and tame some of those S's that will kick off a bright, splashy reverb in an unpleasant way. That's true,
0: and it's also sometimes useful to actually quite heavily compress the send of the reverb. That way on the louder sections, you're not getting swamped with reverb, whereas when the singer goes a little quieter and a little more intimate, the reverb tends to appear to come up in level.
4: Yeah, there are some people who like that effect of loud notes and the singer takes 17 paces backwards.
0: So basically, no, don't normalise it. But if the gain is too low because you've recorded at some kind of silly level and you can't do it again, then maybe use the makeup gain in your
1: compressor just to get back into the right ballpark. Sound. Sound. Sound advice. Pete Drysdale asks, Before becoming an SOS reader, I tried to improve my studio acoustics by sticking cheap carpet to the walls. Now everything sounds boxy and dull, but I can't remove the carpet without damaging the walls. What would you suggest I do? The problem with
0: carpet is that it only absorbs really high frequencies because it's quite thin so all the low end and the mid frequencies continue to resonate around the room and all you get is a rather skewed balance with no top end so everything sounds boxier and more rumbly than it did before. To fix this without ripping the carpet off, first of all you need to put back some high frequency reflection because obviously the room's too absorbent up at 2 and 3 kHz and above which you can do by putting some flat reflective sheeting into the room such as MDF, plywood, old CDs, maybe cover 50% of the walls with that. You also need to deal with those rumbly low frequencies, so using conventional acoustic treatment on top of the existing would probably work, which uh, ideally would be something like 4 inch foam either side of your listening position, another piece on the ceiling above you and maybe a couple of pieces behind the monitors. Also, try and get some scattering at the back of the room. So if you've got shelves or unused gear, stack it all at the back of the room just to stop the sound bouncing back as a plane wave to your listening position. What would you do here?
4: Pretty much the same, actually. I mean, it, it's essentially all about trying to get an even frequency response to the reverberation in the room. And, and what you've got at the moment with just the carpet is lots of, of soak-up at the, at the high end and nothing at the bottom, as you say. So you can either put some of the high end back, as Paul suggests, with reflectors, or you can try and soak up more of the, the, the lower end of stuff by putting in more trapping uh bass traps full band absorbers that kind of thing uh, in practice actually probably going be best to do a mixture of both add some extra absorption for the low end put in a bit of scattering and reflection for the top end uh, and just sort of adjust the things until you get the balance you want this
0: is the sound on sound
4: podcast in the may issue of sound on sound you'll find an article all about mix compression written by will haas here's will to tell you a bit more about it
5: Features. hello i'm will haas author of the Hitting Harder Mix Compression feature in the May issue of Sound on Sound magazine. In this article, you'll learn the ins and outs of mix bus compression, a technique for applying stereo compression to the master mix bus. When it comes to mix bus compression, going about this technique in the wrong order can open up a Pandora's box for your music and your mastering engineer's sanity. That being said, when it comes to your mixing style, proper mix bus compression can give you quite an edge. This month's feature article gives you an insight into mix compression, with comments from a professional mix engineer and a professional mastering engineer. In this technically potent article, find out the key elements of creating those in-your-face sounding mixes. Different productions call for different compression measures, so I will also describe how to enhance dimension and control sustain, all from the use of mix compression.
1: This is the Sound on
5: Sound podcast.
1: That was Will Haas there. On the Sound On Sound website homepage you'll find a link to more information on the forthcoming Sound Recording Technology Show, which Sound On Sound are sponsoring. SRT is part of the London International Music Show, which is taking place on the 13th, 14th and 15th of June at the Excel Centre in London's Docklands. The Sound on Sound team will be there, running seminars on everything from bedroom production to live sound engineering, and we'll also be giving away a massive bundle of gear to one lucky prize winner, as well as talking to some big-name producers on our producer panels. So that's the SRT Show on the 13th, 14th and 15th of June. Join us next time for more from the SOS team, and remember that the May issue of SOS is in the shops now and is available online at www.soundonsound.com.